We're going to see today that we are to say thank you, Jesus, for his never-ending, always patient, always constant love. That we are to say thank you, Jesus, for his never-ending, always patient, always constant love. If you have your Bible, whether it's paper kind or digital kind, if you just open up, I just want to go through a few things about the passage Not necessarily going verse by verse today, but I want to point out a few things to help us understand this psalm, Psalm 118. And we're going through Psalm 118 today because it is the psalm from which this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is quoted from when Jesus enters Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. So if you have it with you, um, we know that the theme of this song is Thanksgiving because there are some very obvious clues. The first clue is this, is that the first verse and the last verse of the psalm uh, repeats itself. And it's this line, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So whenever we see any poem, any song with these bookends that are exactly the same or similar theme, we know this is a clue to us that this is a theme for this, this song or this poem. And we have that um, reinforced because the first four verses of this psalm, verses one through four, essentially repeats itself with this line again, his steadfast love endures forever. David in this psalm calls upon these three different groups of people to say his steadfast love endures forever. He calls the people of Israel to say this. He calls on the priests of Israel to say this. And then he calls on all people who fear the Lord to say this. His steadfast love endures forever. So we see that, again, just from these simple clues that this main theme of this psalm is thanksgiving to the Lord for his steadfast love. Now there are two main parts to this, uh, to this psalm after that introduction, verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 18 King David is essentially sharing a personal experience, a personal story of how God's love and goodness has met him in the midst of great distress and how God had delivered him from difficult circumstances. We are, he paints this picture, right, of him leading his army in battle, that he's surrounded and he is in despair and is, is worried that even his life will be taken. But what he sees in the end is that God delivers him and brings him and his army to victory, and he praises God for that. In the second part, verses 19 through 27, there is kind of a big transition here, because now he switches from being the king who's leading his army in in battle um, to being him as the king in his priestly role. He is leading the people of God, or perhaps the the army, into the gates of the city or perhaps to the gates of the temple to bring praise to God. He's leading the people of God in worship of God. It's like a, it's a liturgy here, essentially. And he's inviting anyone who would sing this, um, and they, they, they did, Israel did sing it at different festivals, to sing this in worship to God as a liturgy as they approach God. And again, This was um, perhaps sung when a victorious army entered the gates of the city. Perhaps it was uh, sung, again, led by the king as a representative approaching the gates of the temple. And again, praising God for answered prayer. 
it perhaps could also have been uh, a psalm that was sung when there was, or even composed, for the laying of foundation of a, of a new temple or the dedication of the new temple. And we know throughout the Jewish history that Psalm 119 was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles and also Passover, which is what we heard in today's reading in Matthew and other Gospels. And so we know from the different Gospel accounts that the crowds were essentially reciting this psalm on Palm Sunday. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, this this line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is particularly emphasized. And Jesus himself suggests in Matthew 23 to 39 that this psalm, this line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will be sung again when he returns at his second coming. So again, we... I just wanted to give kind of uh, some of these clues in the, in the psalm and the poem that tell us what this psalm is about. And so, the, again, the overarching theme is thanksgiving to the Lord for a steadfast love. But woven in throughout this psalm, which is a, a longish psalm, uh, not as long as the next psalm after it, but there's these, these, these themes of divine sovereignty, of human responsibility, of confidence in God and, and pleading to God. And we see, of course, again, David is describing these difficult circumstances, these circumstances of deep distress that he was in, and how he found God in the midst of that. And it brings up some very common experiences, questions, doubts that we all have in times of distress. Questions of, if God is in control, then why does he allow me to suffer If God is in control, why does he allow me to suffer? What is my responsibility or not my responsibility in times of suffering and distress? It makes us ask common questions of how can I keep trusting God in the midst of suffering and distress? Or how do I keep pleading to God when it doesn't seem like God is answering my prayers? Again, these are questions. When we have gone through times of distress, times of wilderness we would even describe in our lives where we've asked these questions. And King David is woven these different themes throughout this psalm. And David, again, is, is, is presenting here, is presented here as an example of faith in the times of deep distress. You know, he describes a situation where he, again, he feels like his life is being threatened. He is surrounded by enemies, and yet the Lord delivers him, even in, in these extreme circumstances, that he cries out to God for help, and God provides the help that he's calling out to. And yet David also continues to take responsibility and seeks to be faithful to God in the midst of that distress, trusting in God's plan in the midst of those difficult times. And he expresses confidence in how he has seen God deliver and bring help in the past, and yet also looking to the future, continuing to ask God for help for what is to come. And it's interesting that at the very same time, and perhaps David doesn't even know it, he's just moved by the Spirit of God, that he's pointing to an even greater hope. He's not just pointing to the past. He's not just pointing to his own future as King David and in his role as, as, as priest and king for the nation. He's pointing to a greater hope of a Messiah that will come who will fully deliver the people of God from brokenness in this world. He's pointing to a divine Messiah who will continue to save, who will bring the people of God into the, into the presence of a perfectly holy God. 
and that he will be the one who will deliver us once and for all from the brokenness of this life. I wonder for you, as you look at a psalm like this, where you see King David recounting an experience of God, how God had delivered in times of distress, what are memories that you have of seeing God work in that way? Memories that you can look back on and recall in remembrance of the way the Lord has worked to give you confidence as you move into difficult circumstances in the future. Certainly as I've looked at my life, um, I have seen how God has shown me incredible grace, both in his eyes and even just in the sense of this world in, in terms of not experiencing fully the consequences which I know that I deserve. I've seen certainly how God has supernaturally and providentially worked so that he is, it, he is clearly the one who's working behind the scenes to bring deliverance and help in times of brokenness. And certainly, brokenness is something we know as Christians that is bound to come. Difficult circumstances are bound to exist throughout our lives as we live in this broken world. I know for myself, one of the most powerful things for me in my my faith is I've seen how God has delivered me from struggling with a sense of meaninglessness in life and hopelessness in this life. And you may have heard me share about this, even from up here, that that struggle came with it, suicidal thoughts at times, struggle with suicidal thoughts. And there's been a show recently that's called A Million Little Things on one of the channels, network channels, and I don't know if you know it, and it's, a bit, it's actually a bit contrived. It's like it's trying to be This Is Us, but it can't quite achieve that <laughs> ma- magnificence that This Is Us. But I appreciate that it is clearly... It was clearly written, and they, they, they're not hide, trying to hide it. It is clearly written by someone who lost someone to suicide and wanted, within their ability, to bring national attention to this issue. And sadly, I know that many of you in, in this very room have, have, have lost loved ones to suicide or struggle with suicidal thoughts yourself. And certainly in a college town like this, or even just our our culture in general that is so tending towards being self-sufficient, fearful of consequences of admitting weakness, is, is difficult to admit. We feel like if we're a professional, if we're in academia, we, we just have to keep it together, present this nice front for everyone to see. It doesn't always feel safe to share that we struggle with those kinds of thoughts. But Let's get real, right? We know that suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts, and even successful attempts are very real in our world. And some of you, again, can relate to that personally, whether it's a loved one or yourself. For myself, I don't know at what age this happened, but sometime in my teenage years, I deeply believe nobody loved me. Not my friends, and I I always had good friends throughout my life. Um, and, and not my family. And I would, I would mope around just trying and hoping that someone would show me attention and show me that I deserved attention and love and try to draw me out and, and again, just show and prove that they love me. And mainly, I struggled with not wanting to live rather than active thoughts or plans. And I would think to myself something along the lines of, well, if a truck hit me today, it's no big deal. No one would miss me anyway. And frequently, this was a habit of mine, I would go 
usually when it was dark, to some high place. Just really, just to mope, just to think dark, despairing thoughts from particular place. And I would have my favorite places where I would do that, how bad my life was and how unloved I was. When I became a Christian at 16, I was loved in a way and felt loved in a way, in an overwhelming way that I'd never that I can't even remember experiencing up to that point in my life. And really, I was just, I was high on God's love for three months. And, and I didn't, I didn't have any, I don't think I had any suicidal thoughts in that, in those three months. But then reality hit me. That coincided, that time coincided with me going to boarding school for the first time and probably being the most depressed I'd ever have and struggling more than ever with those kinds of thoughts. I still believe that God loved me, but then it switched to this thing of like, well, I might as well go home to be with Jesus. That just seems better than going through this really, really difficult life. And so from that time on and through most of college, I continue to struggle off and on again with those kinds of, I don't know, bouts of depression or struggle with suicidal thoughts and going through kind of mopey seasons where I was hoping that I would find that someone would love me in the way that I was hoping for. And I would still go and have my little brooding self-hatred sessions of just how bad life was and, and, and just, again, just being depressed in general. But somehow, just even through that time, God really more subtly, as I grew as a Christian, as I studied his word, as I understood deeper theology and God bringing different experiences to my life, he just showed me the depth of his love. It went from this kind of crush that I had with God that was so overwhelmingly high to a much more steady, constant love that I experienced from God. And I do remember this distinct moment in my life, my senior year in college. I was uh, in my apartment, which I shared with some Christian guys, and at one evening, I just was, in, again, in one of those bad moods, one of those, like, I just need to go and mope and brood and remember and despair how bad my life is. And so I went outside to our back porch, our back porch um, in our apartments there at Maryland. Actually, the back porch was just fields and fields, and so it was great to go out in the dark and just kind of look out into the dark and brood and, and despair. And so I brought a st- stereo with me. Who has stereos anymore? I brought a stereo with me. I brought my favorite mopey album, U2's Joshua Tree, put it in and press play, just ready to have this sad, mopey session. And 30 seconds into the song, I just felt the Lord impress upon me, you don't need to do this anymore. I love you. And I couldn't really even explain what happened other than that, that that Somehow God spoke those words so deeply into my soul in that moment. I was like, yeah. And I just literally pressed stop, picked up the stereo, went into my apartment, and hung out with my roommates. And that was the last time I had one of those mopey, self-hatred, broody sessions. That's not to say that I've never been sad again or never been depressed again. It's to say that I never had, again, one of those mopey, broody, self-hatred, pseudo-suicidal sessions that I had so frequently up to that point in my life that I 
felt God speak his love into my heart in that moment. Just this message. My love for you is never ending. Always patient. Always constant. I love you. You don't need to do this anymore. The love of the gospel broke through in a new way to my soul that helped me to take that leap. And I can't explain it. And it wasn't something that I did. It just was something that the Lord did in my life. For me to look back on that memory is a powerful memory to remember how God's love is never-ending, always patient, always constant, and the foundation from which I live my life. Because I saw him deliver, deliver me from one of the most defining struggles in my life. So I encourage you, your story is different from mine, but what are the examples in your life where you have seen the Lord deliver, come through, bring his help in times of great distress or a difficult time or difficult mindset that you struggle with and to remember the way in which he lovingly and powerfully speaks his hope, the hope of the gospel into your life. And I hope that as you face new struggles, new difficult circumstances, that you will be able to move into those with the hope of the gospel, with remembrance of the power of God's love in your life, even as you go through things that seemingly God has sovereignly allowed and you can't understand why, but to lean into the hope and the trust that you have in God because of what he has done already in your life, because of the gospel that shows us God's commitment to us in his love. And this psalm points us to that gospel. As I said, the second section in this psalm is, is a liturgy that the Israelites used to worship God in specific situations. And so it invites us as well to that. And yet we, we look from a different perspective, right, than the Israelites did because we have history, Jesus' history on our side. We see that Jesus himself referenced this psalm to himself and to his ministry, and therefore we know it to be what we call a messianic messianic psalm, a psalm that points forward at the time to a Messiah, to a divine king who would come to set people free from the brokenness of this world. And we know that person, of course, to be Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah, and that he fulfilled it through his person and work. Now, when Jesus quotes Psalm 118.22 in Matthew 21, verse 42, he does it in the context of telling the parable of the two tenants. In that situation, he was telling the parable to these Jewish leaders as they questioned him in the temple of God in Jerusalem. This is after he had already triumphantly entered Jerusalem. And Jesus quotes this, Psalm 119.22, saying to the Jewish leaders, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so Jesus, in quoting this particular verse to the Jewish leaders, is telling the Jewish leaders in advance, I already know that you have so rejected me that you're willing to put me to death on the cross. And yet he's pointing in the face of death that he also knows that he has power over death, that he will raise from the dead. 
and that he will raise from the dead to become the cornerstone, the foundation for all who would put their trust in him and his work to find life, to find new life, to find deliverance, and to find hope in the new society that Jesus is creating even now. This psalm, may, again, may have been sung on the occasion of dedicating the new temple or laying the foundation for the new temple, but its ultimate purpose for us as we look at it from our vantage point is that it points to the forever temple of God. The forever temple of God is Jesus Christ himself. The temple of God is where the presence of God is. And scripture tells us that Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is where the presence of God is because he is God himself. And that when we have put our faith in Jesus, that we, shockingly, become the temple of God. We become the place where the presence of God dwells. So often as people, in so many different ways, as a society, we say we long for oneness with God. We long for peace with God. We long for peace amongst humanity. We long for peace in this world. This promise that God makes that Jesus is the forever temple and that through oneness with him, we are the temple of God is the answer to that longing. That through faith in him, we will become the place of oneness with God. We will become the place of peace amongst humanity. That will we become the place where God is creating the new society. And so when Jesus says these words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he is saying that he is the one who will fulfill this promise, this work, when, when these words were originally penned by King David, they were for the situation of helping Israel remember God's delivering work. And they sung this song again and again to remember God being the one who delivers. When the crowds chanted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as, as Jesus entered Jerusalem at Passover, they did so because they believed at that moment when they chanted it that he was the Messiah that Psalm 118 pointed to. And they had hope that Jesus would deliver, as the Messiah, deliver them from Roman oppression that they lived under at the time. But Jesus knew that though he entered Jerusalem so triumphantly under these, these chants of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he knew that not so long after that, that the crowds would join the Jewish leaders and chance to crucify him. So when Jesus quotes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, before he even died, he was pointing to his return, to the completion of his work, to his work not only to die on the cross for our sins, not only to raise from the dead to defeat the power of sin, but also pointing to his return to fully complete the work of restoring the world to its original design, its original goodness, a place and a world where God becomes one with people and that there's peace amongst men. 
that we will dwell in complete harmony with one another without suffering, without sorrow, without sin. It is Jesus' call between his first coming and his second coming. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is calling all people to put faith in him and to be able to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is Jesus who brings deliverance to all people, as Michael said earlier, from themselves and their own sin, but also from the weight and the sins of the world, from the brokenness of this world. And so God calls us to sing with people of all ages, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because although we believe already that Jesus fulfilled this over 2,000 years ago, we also wait for Jesus to complete his work to deliver us from the brokenness of this life. And so we continue to say, and we continue to long for this to be fulfilled. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we sing it because we are grateful that he is the one who has a never-ending always patient, always constant love that meets us in the depths of our despair, in the depths of our struggles, and that we can trust him with that love. Blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray.